you also may be familiar, and a lot of people outside of our denomination have heard this phrase that we've embraced as a denomination, that God is still speaking. And what it points to is our core theological belief that revelation is ongoing. If we are to be faithful, we must address the emergent moral challenges. What could be more of an emergent moral challenge than climate change? Welcome to Refugia, a podcast about renewal. Refugia are places of shelter where life endures in times of crisis. From out of these small sanctuaries, life re-emerges and the world is renewed. We're exploring what it means for people of faith to be people of Refugia. How can we create safe places of flourishing, micro-countercultures, where we gain strength and spiritual capacity to face the challenges ahead. I'm Deborah Reenstra, Professor of English at Calvin University. Today, I'm delighted to be talking with the Reverend Dr. Jim Antall. Jim is a denominational leader, climate activist, author, and public theologian. In 2018, he retired as United Church of Christ Conference Minister for the 350 UCC churches in Massachusetts, but he continues to serve as Special Advisor on Climate Justice to the UCC General Minister and President. He is the author of the 2018 book, Climate Church, Climate World, How People of Faith Must Work for Change. He has been a champion of climate work since the first Earth Day in 1970, and in 2019, he received the Steward of Creation Award from the National Religious Coalition for Creation Care. Jim brings a long perspective on climate activism and organizing. So we talked together about his experience in this work and what happens when congregations and denominations unite their efforts to address a moral challenge. I hope you'll be inspired by Reverend Antal's passion and conviction his practical ideas for faith-inspired action, and his sense that Christians and people of all faiths are called to a communal vocation at this crucial moment in history. Reverend Jim Antle, so glad to have you with me. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Oh, it's my pleasure, absolutely. So let's start with where this all began for you. You've been at this climate work for a long time. How did you come to it? What were the initial motivators for you? Well, I was an undergraduate during the first Earth Day in 1970, and that had a big impact on me, I have to say. We had a three-day-long teach-in at the college I attended, and I attended like all of the events. I had been backpacking in the Sierras, and I was an avid cyclist actually then in all of my life. So I was very much in touch with nature. And those teach-ins just made, made a huge impact on the direction of my life. So after I graduated, I, I went to divinity school, and I was intending to become an ethics academician. But, but what I really wanted to study was environmental ethics, and it was not a subject in the early 70s. But at Yale, I, I, I got into the PhD program then, and at Yale, they said, sure, this would be fine for you to do you know, ethics and environment. And one of the philosophy professors there was willing to oversee my work. John Smith was his name. And unfortunately, after a couple of years of work on that, it turns out I'm a little dyslexic. And I was unable to master French and German. Oh. So getting the PhD was simply not possible there, even though I had written most of my dissertation uh, by that time. Mm -hmm. So I, I was teaching assistant for Henry Nouwen for a few years at, at that time. And he was a big influence on my life. He and William Sloan Coffin as well. And um, Henry said, you know, Jim, this is a, a great turn in your life, actually. You're not supposed to be an academician. You're supposed to be a minister. Oh. And and so I went back to Divinity School. I finished my MDiv and I was ordained in the United Church of Christ. I still dragged my heels on becoming a pastor for several years. I, I led a couple of peace organizations. I was a chaplain in a couple of schools. But in 1986, I, I became a pastor and I served for 10 years in Newton, Massachusetts. And then I served for 10 years in Shaker Heights, Ohio. And I preached my first sermon on climate change in 1988. It was a year before Bill McKibben published what is really the first popular book on climate change. So it was still a, a topic of great concern for me. And, and in the late 80s is, is when the United Nations was really waking up to the topic of what at the time was called global warming. Yeah. Um, 
And then it wasn't just on Earth Day, but it was with greater regularity than that, that I began really preaching and focusing um, on climate change and, and became a climate activist. I don't remember when I first got arrested for climate. Um, back in the mid 80s, I was arrested numerous times around preventing nuclear war and reducing nuclear weapons. And it, it may or may not be obvious the connection between a focus on the possibility of nuclear holocaust and the possibility of essentially climate holocaust. Um, but that connection has been a deep and motivating factor throughout my life. And then after my years as a pastor, I, I became head of the United Church of Christ in Massachusetts from 2006 to my retirement in 2018. And something really interesting happened at my interview. They, they were about to confirm with me that I was their candidate. And I said, you know, there's one more thing that I have to ask. I said, I, if, if I'm going to be the leader of our, at that time, 400 congregations in Massachusetts, I need to spend at least 10% of my time on climate. Hmm. And they looked at me like I had two heads. Like I didn't understand. This was an enormous job. And I said, no, no, I get that. I cannot have this position and not do that because of the time we are living in. Yeah. And we had a little more dialogue. And, and then my board had my back for my 12 years as conference minister. And really by the end of my time in that role, I was probably spending 30% of my time mm -hmm. on climate. And, and they were not just proud of it, but, but more than that, they were equally committed to that cause. So that's the kind of span, if you will. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating that this was launched as an undergraduate for you at that remarkable Earth Day. I want to ask about the United Church of Christ, because as I've researched your work and read your book, I've been impressed with the active role of the UCC throughout your life. And you know, so many of us are members of congregations and denominations that are just not paying much attention to the climate crisis. They're obsessed right. about other things. And so the UCC has been working on this over the years. And what have they done right? I mean, other than having you in it, <laughs> why has the UCC been so active and forward thinking about this? Well, you know, Deborah, I know that your audience here embraces a, a real wide range of folks in not just the Christian church, but in houses of worship of, of all kinds. So I want to begin by answering this. The, the kind of biblical phrase that I frequently quoted in my leadership roles is something that perhaps other denominations don't quite embrace. And it comes from Acts chapter 17, verse 6, where it refers to the first disciples as turning the world upside down. And those first disciples, they were responsible for initiating the greatest mass movement the world had ever known. And, and that's at the core of our DNA in the United Church of Christ. Hmm. So the other thing that's at the core of our DNA is God's inclusive love, along with the love and justice of Jesus. So, you know, throughout our history in my denomination, we have been sort of early adapters, if you will. In 1700, we launched the anti-slavery movement with others. In 1773, we were the host at Old South Church in Boston for the original planning of the Tea Party. We were the first to publish an African-American author and the first to ordain an African-American pastor. In 1853, we became the first Christian body since New Testament times to ordain a woman. And as many people today realize in 1972, we became the first denomination to welcome gays and lesbians as ordained ministers. And we have persistently advocated for civil rights, human rights, and equal marriage rights for all. And, you know, all of these landmarks are an example of how the visionary actions of one part of the church have expanded the mission and the vision of the whole church. Yeah, it's remarkable. So, uh, you also may be familiar, and a lot of people outside of our denomination have heard this phrase uh, that we embrace as a denomination, that God is still speaking. And what it points to is our core theological belief that revelation is ongoing. And so if we are to be faithful, we must address the emergent moral challenges. And mm -hmm. what could be more of an emergent moral challenge than climate change. Yeah. So, so in your in your book, yeah. Climate Church, Climate World, you use the phrases moral crisis 
theological crisis and moral intervention. And that's just on page one. So <laughs> clearly you're trying to awaken the church to something that we're not necessarily perceiving. So what is your analysis of why so many churches and religious people, not like the UCC, have, have remained either apathetic or even resistant to working together on the climate crisis? What's getting in the way? Well, you know, uh, as I listen to your question, the phrase that comes out, Deborah, is working together. <laughs> and, it, you yeah. know, it, it's very challenging right now. And never in my life, I'm 72, and never in my life has, has a greater focus been brought on the fact that, you know, America is really based in some myth of rugged individualism and... From the church's point of view, we have a denominated religious landscape. Hmm. And you combine those two things, and the whole challenge of working together becomes enormous. I don't yeah. want to say impossible, but it becomes enormous. Yeah, we have been a little bit obsessed with defining ourselves over against one another yes. and drawing boundaries and, you know, deciding who's in and out. And of course, that's been worsened by American political partisanship and cantankerous division. <laughs> so that we... Well, and, and yeah. your point that you just made about kind of uh, defining who's in and who's out, getting back to what I was saying about my denomination, that's something that the United Church of Christ, it, it like the hair on our back stands up when we hear that phrase defining who's in and who's out. <laughs> you know, when I was when I was a conference minister, I preached in about 300 of our churches, all different churches, all different pastors. Right. But almost every single one of them began whoever you are or wherever you are on life's journey. You are welcome here. And that has become a kind of a defining call within our denomination. And frankly, I don't see any reason why it shouldn't be a defining call, you know, in every religious context. Yeah. And that that idea that we have to all agree on a huge checklist of things before we even begin to cooperate with each other is a huge block to getting anything done. Well, and to, to that point, you're absolutely right what you just said, as, as I'm sure you are familiar with, and many of your listeners may be also. Brian McLaren, his new work over the past five years has really focused on the need for religious practitioners to shift from identification around belief to identification around common values. Yeah, and maybe a common project. Yeah. So let's talk about vocation, because I love the way you talk about vocation in your books and in your other writings. At Calvin University, where I teach vocation, that concept is kind of baked into our campus discourse and even into our curriculum, to the point that by the time our students are seniors, they're really sick of it. <laughs> so <laughs> the poor things. So we talk through it again anyway, because it's part of what we do in our senior seminar, in my department anyway. And they have plenty to say about their frustration with this idea of vocation as the one secret path, usually equated with career, that mm. God wants them to follow in their lives, but for some mysterious reason is not revealing to them, which is very frustrating. But I wonder if we could get over that hurdle of that idea of vocation by thinking about vocation the way you do, which is to say as a communal project. So can you explain your view of vocation as communal? Well, so partly this is connected to my climate change work, but it's also, I just have to say, uh, it's connected to opening the Bible for God's sake. Here's how I think of it. If you take two highlighters, a pink highlighter and a yellow highlighter, and with the pink highlighter, you highlight in pink all the biblical passages where God calls individuals. And then with the yellow highlighter, you highlight all the biblical passage where God calls communities. Mm. And what you realize is that the yellow in your pages totally overwhelms the pink. But in, in America, you know, we have a, this, as I said earlier, the centuries long celebration of rugged individualism. And we've kind of built that into our religious practice as well. 
So we need to expand the idea that God calls congregations in a unified way, as a unified community, or in under our current circumstances with COVID and climate change and other more universal challenges, that God calls a nation or God calls a whole people, or that God can call a generation. Mm. That's been the focus of my most recent work, is that I'm utterly convinced that God, uh, that the way God is acting in, in our world today is trying to rattle us in such a way mm. that we recognize, oh my God, I am part of this unique generation which has the enormous opportunity to set the stage so that future generations might live. Mm. What a profound thing to think about. Uh, there's you, a... you know, I might add one thing also uh, uh, into your uh, what you said about your undergraduates and vocation. And I, one of the things I would point out to them is that scientists today, I come from a family of scientists. You know, I probably should have been a scientist, but I took this turn into religion. Scientists today have accepted a new understanding of the vocation of being a science scientist. Yeah. It was never the case, with the exception of Carl Sagan, it was never the case that scientists thought of themselves as public communicators. And yeah. now what's happening is scientists the world over are recognizing that, that their calling to science must include effective communication and also that they must become effective motivators. Later on in our conversation, we might talk a little bit about civil disobedience, but when I'm talking about scientists now, I just want to say that in the past year, there have been hundreds and hundreds of scientists all over the world who have, who have in, this, in this shift of their understanding of their own vocation, they have embraced civil disobedience as part of what it means to be a scientist. Yeah, part of their job now is prophetic speech. Exactly. Yeah. Well yeah. And one of the things I'm excited to do at Kelvin in our English department is help train writers to be science explainers, to work with science people to help with that communication process. And I have students who are very excited about that. And I, I wish more young people would see that as their perhaps way to participate in this larger communal vocation, which is to help communicate these messages clearly and persuasively. Well, God bless you because that you're, you, I, I triple underscore that is so important. Yeah, and I wonder if we could think about the church that way too, as as being called in this vocation to prophetic speech and to witness as a church to what God is doing in the world. As you say, you know, to kind of wake us up. That really hasn't been the way we thought about church. I think, but maybe maybe it's time to uh, think about church that way. Well, you know, I have known some churches in, in my work uh, that are uh, waking up, let us say. One of them, uh, maybe this would be a time where I, I could share the story of, of one of them. It's the Church of Christ in San Mateo, UCC. And they asked me, I don't know, about a year ago, they, I had spoken out there and keynoted a, a, a big public event that they had. And then they got back to me about a year later and they said, you know, what is a climate church? You know, mm -hmm. it, within the title of my book. Uh, and I shared with them in the form of what uh, your listeners would recognize as a kind of a covenant, this following brief uh, statement. Here's what I wrote. I said, in covenant with God for all time, with all creatures, and with the earth, a climate church is responsive to God's call, informed by the realities of the newest science, persistently focused on the common good, communal salvation, golden rule 2.0. We can talk about that if, if you want to. It means future generations as neighbors. Yes. And living out the love and justice of Jesus. Washed in the wonder of creation, driven by prophetic imagination, humbly unafraid to initiate a moral intervention to hasten a just transition to a sustainable economy, that honors the interdependence of all creation, unreserved in its use of all its gifts and assets 
to help build a more resilient community and prayerfully courageous to make use of its collective power to reshape our personal stories and animate the conscience of the nation as we join with people the world over to restore God's glorious gift of creation. Wouldn't it be something if, you know, thousands of churches, not just in the United States, but really the world over, were to just study that covenant and try to embody it in their own work? Yeah, it's rich and wonderful. We're going to link to that in the show notes. I wonder if we could just sort of dwell appreciatively in a couple of those fantastic phrases. Sure. Uh, Persistently focused on the common good. And it seems to me one of the one of the blockages to work on the climate crisis is this anemic sense of the commons. And that's true, not just in churches, I think, but all over our society as Americans. We're not used to thinking in terms of the commons persistently focused on the common good. And then talk a little bit about Golden Rule 2.0. This is a a great concept that I've read in numerous places in your writing. So explain what you mean by that. It's wonderful. So it turns out, as you and many of your listeners know, that the Golden Rule, to love your neighbors uh, as yourselves, is embraced by every religious tradition. There's some beautiful posters uh, with all the symbols of, of, you know, 15 or 20 of the world's religions and, and their unique way of phrasing this same concept of the golden rule. And the problem with the golden rule is that neither Buddha nor Jesus nor any of the other religious founders of our major traditions lived in a world where the current generation could have a decisive impact on all future generations. Mm. And over the past, depending on how you want to gauge it, five or six or seven generations since the Industrial Revolution, humanity has gained that power. And we first gained it with nuclear weapons. And that's why geologists now speak of the Anthropocene, that we are now in geologic time. We are in that period where humanity's impact on the earth is decisive. Now, on a moral basis, what that means is we need to expand our moral thinking of who our neighbor is, because it's not just that we need to have a loving and just attitude toward the person who happens to be near us, which is how Augustine defined neighbor, We also have to have that same loving and just attitude toward everybody who is alive today. And we have to have a loving and just attitude to people who are yet to be born, all future generations, because they are as much our neighbors as the person sitting next to us in the pew. We have a really weighty neighbor responsibility right now because our neighbors are across the globe and across future time. And that is really overwhelming. But I I keep thinking back to that phrase that you mentioned before, that characteristic UCC phrase, God is still speaking. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me like in order to understand the weight, the moral weight of our time and of our role as people of God in this time, to, to understand the weight of what you like to call the repurposed church, we have to accept that premise that we can't go back to some olden time that we repristinate, you know, to make pristine that which never was pristine. And imagine there was some past when the church was pure or life was good or something. But we have to continually listen to the spirit. I mean, it seems to me this is just orthodoxy, right? We have to continually listen to the spirit and perhaps allow this fourth great awakening that Diana Butler Bass talks about or this great turning into... yes accept our responsibility at this inflection point. And it's really overwhelming. And, and you know, I, I think we, we have to remember that we're supposed to trust in God, that we can accept this responsibility because we can trust in God's inspiration and in God's purposes. And that maybe brings us back to a couple other phrases in that wonderful covenant, humbly unafraid to initiate a moral intervention. 
Could you unpack that one? Because there's a lot going on there. Well, I'll give you a a very concrete example of it. One of the things that I do when I talk to churches, and it's uh, fortunately my opportunity to talk to churches all over the country, is that I ask them, so how close are you to a railroad track? And most of them know the answer to that. If I were to ask them, how close are you to a natural gas or oil pipeline? Most of them would probably not know. So, you know, railroad tracks are a sort of a current version of pipelines, actually, because so much oil and coal is transported by railroads. Oh, yeah. And then then I suggest to these churches, what would it be like if you were to convene worship on the track? What would it be like if you were to celebrate communion on the track? And as as you and some of your listeners may know, there have been church groups a group of Presbyterians out in, I think it was Seattle, it might have been Oregon, and a group of nuns in Pennsylvania who have essentially done just that. I'm sure there are many, many others. And, you know, in both of those cases, and the opportunity is there, I think, for just about every congregation in America, what we need to do is to make ourselves aware that it's our moral obligation to intervene with the fossil fuel system. We are at a point now where scientists tell us and economists tell us that, and I could not say this two years ago, but I can say it today, Mm -hmm. the cheapest form of energy is wind, solar, and water, period, full stop. And, And all the stuff that we hear that counters that is all simply made up nonsense in order to allow the profiteers of those industries, of oil, coal, and gas industries, like Joe Manchin, for example, to continue to make the profits they have been accustomed to over the past seven generations. And we have to be the generation that ends that. So how do you respond to church people who would say, wait, we're supposed to be involved in business and politics? No, we're just church. How do you respond to that argument? It's such a common one. Well, it is such a common one. And and the most important thing, and you know, when I uh, was in my role in, in UCC in Massachusetts, every two years, I would revisit the question of what is the difference between being partisan and being political? Mm-hmm. And I would urge every pastor, at least every four years, if not every two years, to offer a sermon on their understanding of the fact that, of course, as followers of Jesus, we are called to be political. Everything Jesus did was political. He was interacting with the empire of his time with every word that came out of his mouth. But that has nothing to do with being partisan, you know, supporting one party versus another. How in God's name could advocating for the restoration of God's creation be viewed as, I don't know, inappropriate for a church or a body of faith to engage in. It's to me, it's just unimaginable. But but as everybody listening to this knows, the issue of climate change has been politicized. Yeah. Few, few, I'll just add one more thing, Deborah, and then you may have additional questions. A few people remember that back in, I'm trying to remember when it was, I think it was 2008, Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi did a TV ad together. It's laughable now, isn't it? Yeah, it's incredible. They were sitting on a couch and behind them was kind of a dried out lake. And they were sort of looking at each other and sort of not looking at each other. And one of them said to the other, uh, I think Nancy said to, to, to Newt Gingrich, you know, you and I don't agree on much, do we, Newt? And he said, yep, that sure is right. She said, but we can't agree on one thing, can't we? He said, we sure can. And that's climate change. Whoa. And then he went on and said something. She went on and said something. It was a 30-second ad. Wow. He, within a year, he said it was the dumbest thing he had ever done politically. <laughs> but pursuant... Pursuant to this conversation you and I are having, yeah. it it was a momentary setting aside of partisanship and engaging in the most important moral conversation of the moment. And I, you know, I think one of the arguments 
in response to that, too, is to say that to stay out of it is also political. That is also a political choice. You are essentially allowing the current unjust systems to continue to exist without accountability, without challenge. This is such an important point you're making, Deborah. And, and you know, as you know, in, in terms of the sort of background of kind of the fundamentals of ethics, you have sins of commission, but you also have sins mm-hmm. of omission. Mm-hmm. And, and your point is that uh, we cannot stand idly by in this, in this time. I, I'll put it very bluntly. We cannot claim to be people of faith living in the age we are living and not be engaged in restoring creation and combating climate change. I appreciate it. In your book, you draw the analogy between now and the civil rights movement, and even before that, the abolition movement, where churches were involved in what they perceived, Black churches especially, but some white churches too, involved in what they perceived as the moral challenge of the times. Yes. And I think it's it's incumbent upon those of us involved in this to continually point out that the climate crisis is a moral challenge that the church has to be involved in. That's right. Yeah. And those analogies that you've just made are, are really critical in attempting to wake people up to that. Mm. Yeah. So give us some examples of what this looks like on the ground. What does a climate church look like? What are they doing? What are, what are their activities? What is their worship like? You have so many great examples in the book. And I, I really commend the book to people who are interested in getting their church involved because it's full of good examples. But give us some that are especially important to you. You know, I I think the way I want to answer that question is to say that the church, the congregation, any particular uh, congregation, it needs to become a safe enough place and a relevant enough place to do four things. So, So keep in mind, as I say these four things, keep in mind, oh yeah, are we are we a congregation that is safe enough to actually pull this off? Mm-hmm. And the first one is clergy need to preach on the climate emergency. Now, you and I both know there are many, many clergy who have never preached on the climate emergency. And why? Because they don't think it's safe enough for them to do it. They think they might be run out of town exactly if they preach on the climate emergency. Yeah. So this is why I begin by saying, the, the house of worship needs to be safe enough and relevant enough first for clergy to preach on the climate emergency. And not just that, but to help people realize the intersectionality of racial justice, oh. economic justice, and climate justice. So much in our churches, what we do is, we you know, whether we call it the, the mission committee or the benevolence committee or whatever we call it, they have their little siloed commitments. And, mm. and what they often fail to do is to recognize the intersectionality of injustice. And one of the things that climate change does is it helps people realize, oh, my God, all these justice issues we care so much about are all amplified yes. by climate change. Yeah. So, so then the second thing we need to do is that we need, we need to uh, create enough space in our worship so that people can bear testimony to Mm -hmm. what they or their family are doing in relation to the climate crisis. And that could be anything from, you know, installing a solar panel to having a conversation with their child about the grief that their Mm -hmm. child is experiencing over the climate crisis. That leads to my third thing, which is we need to process our grief. Houses of worship are places where we're supposed to be good at helping people process grief. But what about the grief over the degradation of the earth that we love? Mm. We need to create the conditions in which existential dread can be dealt with so that it itself, that existential dread can serve as a precondition of hope. And Mm. I think churches and houses of worship of all kinds can be places where that happens. And then finally, as, as a fourth thing, Congregations need to get involved in advocating for and supporting policies to restore God's creation. So uh, we, in many of our congregations in my denomination, but I know this is true in, in congregations in other denominations, they're involved in the Environmental Voter Project. 
And one concrete example is, uh, and, and, and I know dozens of congregations that did this uh, two years ago, you know, in, in the 2020 elections, that in October, prior to the election, they handed out the uh, environmental voter pledge cards. And it was a simple pledge, something along the lines of um, pledge to make, uh, you know, climate change and uh, environmental concerns a, a top order consideration in all of my voting. And then people sign it, they put it in the offering plate, and then the pastor offers a blessing over those cards. And, you know, as you and probably everybody in your audience knows, the best way we can assure that people will actually take action on something is that they actually make a promise to somebody else that they'll do it. So that's one of the reasons why that that pledge card thing uh, is so important. So those are a few of, of, of my yeah. responses to, uh, I could go on and on. Yeah, that's really helpful. I want to come back to activism, but first I want to go back to preaching. Sure. Because when when you say preach about climate change, I can just hear voices in my head saying, oh, but I preach about the Bible. So could you connect maybe, or or maybe further explain what you mean when you say preach about climate change? Well, this is this is really interesting. It gets back to something we talked a little about earlier. Uh, so I want to begin by saying God is still speaking. You know, it, it turns <laughs> yeah. out climate change is not in the Bible, uh, but all of the principles and all of the foundation, if you will, for caring for creation, or or whatever other words in your tradition you're accustomed to using tending and keeping creation mm-hmm. uh is what uh you know pope francis uses uh in laudato si it, it i don't care how you phrase it that foundation is laid indelibly in scripture so when people you know who who are on on the you know more conservative side or even inerrantist side begin to make this argument, you know I just direct them to, to Psalm twenty four. The yeah. earth is the Lord's. Yeah. Full stop. And yeah. and it's and, and as as ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew, the head of the Orthodox Church, says it's not ours to wreck. Mm. Yeah. So preaching the Bible, it, it, it's it's a matter of seeing what Paul Santmeyer calls that ecological motif that's always been there, is there. We just haven't been able to see it lately in, you know, post-industrial consumer capitalist context. We have to go back and recognize that ecological motif that's in the Bible, in the theological tradition, and begin to surface it again. Exactly. So let's talk about activism. You've been arrested dozens of times, I I think you said once. Um, (laughs) And sometimes I feel like one hasn't really been in the climate fight until one has spent time in jail with famous activists. (laughs) It seems to be what people talk about. But I wonder if you could say a little bit about the dialectic between the fight and the vision. And what I mean is, it seems to me important to find some way to participate in the fight, but also to posit a compelling vision of where we're headed. So how do you think about the balance between working in the fight and holding out that vision of where we're going? And how do you bring Christian theology into that? So so when I, when I uh, listen to this question that you've asked, Deborah, the, the, the thing that unites For me, the thing that unites the fight and the vision to me is leadership, that leadership has to embrace both the fight and the vision. And when I say leadership, what I'm thinking of is, but I I think it could apply to any form of leadership, but I'm thinking concretely of bishops, clergy, and lay leaders in the church. And, And they, no matter what their role, they are called to provide congregations with vision and then, as, as Abraham Heschel said it, they're called to pray with their feet. And, and that means, you know, rolling up their sleeves and getting involved in the fight. I'm glad to, if, if you want to, like, put this question to me in another way, that, that would be fine. But, but my initial response is to say that, um, you know, if, if you are in a position of leadership or you are purporting to be a leader, 
providing people with vision and engaging in the fight yourself as an example uh, is is essential. Mm, that's really helpful, actually. I don't know that people necessarily think about that as a leadership role, that both of those things are necessary in a leadership role. Well, and wouldn't it be wonderful if seminaries taught it? <laughs> ah. <laughs> there we go. Let's just pause to imagine that for a minute. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard an interview with you um, for the Yale folks in which you posited this amazing vision that combined these two, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, you, you posited this vision of churches everywhere uniting to push for these new um, climate policies. And and it, it was sort of a powerful vision. Well, but what, what you've just said, um, the, it goes back to a couple of different parts of the questions that you have asked, which is churches uniting everywhere. I mean, imagine across denominations and let's not let's not limit it to churches let's involve synagogues and mosques and temples what if what if the leaders of all of these denominations and faith groups what if they came together and said you know listen uh each of us in our traditions we are caretakers of of god's creation we talk about it in different ways but that that's what our traditions are rooted in and and we are here to tell you whether it's you the current president of the united states or you the heads of the eu or you the rest of the world leaders we are here to tell you that we will not rest until you put the restoration of the earth above the profit of current generation companies and shareholders because that's the debate that we have going on right now is that our politicians are unwilling to put the concerns for a sustainable earth that future generations can live in they're unwilling to put that above the sort of continuity if you will of corporate greed and wealth and 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 churches synagogues mosques and temples we can have an impact on that. That's why, as we said earlier, this is a moral issue. This is, this is not a political issue, for God's sakes. It's a, I mean, it involves politics, but it's a moral issue. Yeah, yeah, and it has to do with holding accountable corporations that have used and abused the commons yes. for their own profit. Yes, exactly. I'm so I'm so glad you brought up interfaith cooperation because you've had the privilege of partnering over many years with people all over the Christian spectrum, but also with people of other faiths and no faith. So I wonder if you could talk about the gifts that come with that partnership. Well, you, you know, I, I have to say what's been wonderful in terms of the ministry that I have been allowed uh, to serve has been sort of acting in solidarity with uh, folks whose understanding of God and whose practice of religion is different from mine. But what we discover together as we sort of conspire, if you will, as we breathe together, <laughs> uh, that we actually all care about the same things when it yeah. comes to uh, climate and environment. So I've learned a ton from people uh, of other traditions. I mean, when, when Pope Francis came out with Laudato Si, you know, I just cried my way through it. And, and, and then when a Jewish academician friend of mine, Naomi Oreskes, who is at Harvard as, as the head of the history of science department, but she also is focused on um, climate, she was asked to write an introduction for one of the published versions of Laudato Si as, as a Jew and as a scientist. It's just an example of, of what you're asking about, which is how it is our various traditions can enhance uh, one another. It seems to me there's such joy in discovering those continuities and connections. Yes. So I, I think that's something that people who are considering this kind of work don't necessarily expect is the joy of discovering that in these partnerships among people that you wouldn't necessarily do work with in other conditions. That puts it so well. I'm so glad you uplifted the word joy in that because that perfectly describes my own personal experience in all of these ways. So let's say we have some listeners out there who are part of a church congregation that's interested in getting more involved. They're sort of 
working their way tentatively toward <laughs> repurposing and taking the climate crisis seriously, or or maybe not repurposing, but focusing their purpose of serving Christ and having this climate work as part of that, but they don't know where to begin. So what would you recommend as maybe a series of first moves? There's so many places that, <laughs> that, that, that folks and congregations can begin. And, you know, one of the things I learned in my, in my position as, as a sort of leader or overseer of these 350 congregations is that the, the climate, the culture of each of these congregations is different. So the answer to your question might be different for every single community that is out there. But some of, some of the things that come to my mind in response to that is it's really essential for a congregation to look at all of its assets. So when I say all of its assets, I mean, first of all, the people and all of the gifts that the people bring to in response to this particular challenge. So what I said earlier, inviting testimony that surfaces and kind of features those gifts and actions that individual families take as examples for other families is something that's really, really important. But it's also the case that many of our congregations have uh, financial assets. And so it's important for people listening to this to realize that in 2013, my denomination became the first national body of any kind and the first religious body of any kind to vote to divest from fossil fuel. Mm. And many, many congregations, thousands and thousands of congregations all over the world have done exactly that over the past 10 years. And, and a number that is, that is almost impossible to comprehend, if you were to add up all the portfolios of all of the congregations, all of the individuals, and all of the other institutions like philanthropies and like pension funds, which have purged their portfolios of stocks, fossil fuel stocks, that total of all those assets is $41 trillion. Oh my goodness. And this has had a huge impact on the fossil fuel industry. They realize that, that, that altogether these institutions, and uh, if you add up all the different institutions that have publicly divested, over 35% of them are, are, are religious institutions. And the Pope has advocated for divesting. Yeah. And the ecumenical patriarch has advocated for divesting. So, so that's a, another thing that congregations which have financial assets can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so th- those are a couple couple of quick answers to your question. Yeah, I appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to add or talk about or reflect upon as we conclude our time here? Well, uh, I think I think the, the the one thing that comes to my mind that we haven't touched on, and and I think it's important, and I also think congregations are in the moment a little lost uh, as to how to do this, and that is every congregation I'm aware of is kind of tied up in knots and frustrated over the fact that what was once a thriving Sunday school and youth group has diminished. Mm. And um, I, I just want your listeners to to know that first, that's a universal phenomenon. You're not alone. Mm. And secondly, that there are many congregations that are beginning to realize not only do they need to be committed to this climate movement and to restoring God's creation, but one way to do that is to align themselves with youth uh, initiatives in their town or region, such as the Sunrise Movement or the Extinction Rebellion. They go by different names. Our church that I mentioned earlier, our church, uh, UCC Church in San Mateo, California, they're in partnership and have been so for two or three years with the Sunrise Movement chapter there in greater San Francisco and the Extinction Rebellion there. And, you know, the kids will sometimes do stuff that the, that the grownups kind of roll their eyes uh, about, <laughs> but oftentimes they can support each other for God's sakes. Yeah. And guess what? Those young people are a little surprised that a church yeah. would be interested and share their values around climate change. That's a good thing to realize. Yeah. And, and I, I think the, the, the final shout out I want to give to this is something you may be familiar with, Deborah, and that is that what used to be a seminary, the Bangor Theological School, 
is now a center focused largely on theology and climate change. And they are helping pastors and church leaders uh, really dive into these issues in all kinds of ways. So anybody listening to this, if you just go to Bangor Theological School Center or BTSC, you can find out more information for, for what they are uh, up to. And some of what they're up to connects with youth, which which I was talking about a moment ago, but it, but it goes much more broad than that. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And the the resources out there are proliferating. Yes. And they're they're very rich. You just have to go seeking them. So we'll try to hold those up as much as we can in the show notes. And and I do recommend um, that listeners look at your book, Climate Change, Climate World, for the content in it, for the inspiration in it, and the footnotes. The footnotes are full of great resources too. <laughs> <laughs> Typical academic, right? Championing. Yes, indeed. But, it, but you're right. <laughs> yes. Reverend Jim Antel, it's been so great to talk to you. I'm so grateful for your work, for your example, for your prophetic example in this work for so many years, for your leadership in the church, and for your time together with me today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure, Deborah. The Refugia Podcast is produced with support from the Kelvin Center for Christian Scholarship. Our audio editors are Ian Gilbert and Katherine Gardner. Our text editor is Michael Rubing. If you enjoyed this episode, please help other listeners discover us. Write a review on your podcast platform or share this episode through social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Refugia Podcast. You can also visit our website at refugiapodcast.com, where you can explore links and transcripts from this and all our episodes. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Deborah K. Reinstra. That's D-E-B-R-A-K-R-I-E-N-S-T-R-A. As always, thanks for listening.